Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of our series about ancient Pacific Island navigation. In the previous couple of episodes, of course, if you haven't listened to those, you should go back and check those out first so you can understand what we're talking about today. But in the last couple of episodes, we talked about a lot of these fascinating mysteries about the the population of the Pacific Islands and, and how those islands were first colonized by humans, how people found them, and then how people traveled between them once they knew where all the islands were. Because, of course, this is a huge uh, area of the surface of the earth that is covered almost entirely by water and only polka dotted with these tiny islands here and there. And yet somehow without charts, without instruments, like a, like a compass, um, the navigators of the Pacific islands were able to reach the other islands in, in the surrounding areas with this amazing level of accuracy. So in the first episode, we talked about some of the history uh, theories about the history of the settlement of these islands. And then in the last episode, we talked about techniques that have been documented that allowed master navigators to locate and and sail to islands in this in this vast ocean uh, with enough accuracy that they could do so reliably over and over again and what those techniques without charts and modern instruments would have been yeah this this whole realm of environmental navigation which i just want to drive home again when we're talking about this, we're talking not about some sort of innate art or something that is just uh, this one acquires by you know being out in the water or being uh, you know growing up on the ocean that sort of thing. No, this was a this was a, a science that was learned that was passed down from generation to generation across these uh, these different Pacific cultures. That's right. Uh, one of the main sources we've been referring to is a very important book in the history of of studying these techniques. That was by a scholar named David Lewis, and it was published with the University of Hawaii Press in 1972. It's called We the Navigators, the Ancient Art of Land Finding in the Pacific. And uh, one thing that's really uh, really cool about this book is that Lewis sailed uh, – well, he, he interviewed many master navigators of different Pacific islands in Micronesia and Polynesia. But he also sailed with several navigators, including uh, uh, two very prominent navigators named Hippur and Teveke, uh, from whom he, he learned a whole lot about these, uh, these techniques firsthand at sea. Like they were navigating mm-hmm. his boat, which was a, uh, a boat called the Ispiorn. And uh, and so we got to see these techniques firsthand. And so in the last episode, we talked mostly about techniques for navigation on the open sea, direction finding. So especially using the stars to to orient towards your targets, and uh, and then using backup methods as well, such as like uh, using the sun during the daytime and navigating by uh, directionally reliable sea swells, which was especially astounding to me. Like the idea that you you know you could learn how to feel for certain patterns of sea swells that uh, reliably come from a certain direction, and then use that to know uh, which way you're heading. Um, and then also, of course, you would have to pair these direction finding techniques on the open sea with the system of dead reckoning, which is uh, knowing how far you have traveled based on your rate of travel, your starting position and your direction of travel. And uh, so and so that would be a way of sort of record keeping your journey mentally as you're going along the way, even though you don't necessarily have new environmental clues to choose from. But today we wanted to get mainly into the question of land finding. So a 
Traditional Pacific Navigator has used open sea navigation techniques like celestial orientation and dead reckoning to get roughly to the vicinity of an island. Once you are nearing your destination, how do you actually find the land? Yeah, because as we discussed in the previous episode, you don't want to you know, be sailing in the right direction to be in the vicinity of the island and then not be able to see it. To, to again, not be close enough to pick up on the very obvious cues that you were near the island and have to pick up on those more subtle cues uh, that would require training and expertise to notice. Right. I mean, one of the biggest dangers, actually, for a, a Pacific Island sailor is missing your target, is mm -hmm. going past the island you're trying to get to without realizing it. Yeah. I mean, in a very, very loose sense, it's like, depending on, say, your, um, your GPS navigational system, which we referred to previously, you know, using that to get to the immediate area, like the block uh, where the where the store is that you're trying to go, a store you've never mm -hmm. been to before. But then once you're there, the GPS is only going to help you so much. Then you're going to have to pinpoint the sign, figure out which storefront it is, figure out your parking, etc. There are a whole new set of problems that your mere um, navigational uh, system, your GPS, is not able to help you with. Right. And so one thing that's very interesting that uh, David Lewis explores in his book is what he calls the idea of expanded target landfall. And what that means is that by using a suite of land finding techniques, you can essentially extend the radius of land uh, a certain uh, reliable distance out into the ocean. And I'll talk about the distances as we go on. But there's a certain reliable distance out into the ocean that you can just expect to be able to detect nearby land, even if you can't see it. And if you measure land, including those radii out into the ocean beyond the shore, and uh, and especially beyond sort of uh, like reefs and submerged or, mo or almost submerged atolls nearby, you can actually greatly expand the percent of the Pacific Ocean that is taken up by, uh, by, by land range, basically. So you can expand your target from these tiny islands surrounded mostly by water to basically a block of islands with mostly or totally overlapping ranges of land-detectable water. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah. They basically increases the the the, uh, the footprint of the island like the the detectable footprint of the island right so uh, so of course the the direction finding techniques like celestial navigation are extremely important in getting you toward your your target but also the expanded target landfall is just as important if not more important i mean i guess you can't really have one without the other the, it is also extremely important uh, because, you know, there's only so accurate you can get with steering by stars. You still need to be able to correct course and find the land once you're close enough. And so how far exactly can you expect to find land from out in the ocean? Well, it does vary a lot depending on local conditions, but Lewis cites a scholar named Frankel who estimates that on average, land can usually be detected from about 30 miles in any direction. And Lewis essentially agrees with this number. Uh, and then he writes this, quote, If we draw circles with 30 miles radii around each Pacific island, we find that the circles overlap over vast areas, giving rise to solid blocks, i.e. islands separated by not more than 60 miles, passing between which a canoe could not be more than 30 miles offshore. 
So with these expanded target landfall techniques, the problem of finding these tiny islands in the vast ocean actually is much more uh, manageable. It's reducible more to finding these blocks or screens of islands within a certain angle, you know, a certain angle of direction from your starting position. So it means that what would otherwise be a sprinkle of islands becomes a clump of islands. Uh, yes, which uh, there's, some, there's you actually you shared a wonderful map here that uh, that that demonstrates this, and it's really uh, it's really quite impressive because uh, you can see it making a huge amount of difference uh, as you're traveling, you know, between these these islands, uh, uh, potentially even charting some of these these more distant tra- uh, journeys. That's right. So if you're looking at it from a map that includes uh, expanded target landfall as sort of a black circle around the island, what would have been a smattering of, of little tiny dots instead turns into a big clump of black circles yeah. that they're all overlapping each other. Uh, so this really does help with the problem. But of course, you, you could easily, once again, pass between these islands without actually being able to see them visually. So you need to be able to know what to look for. And again, one of the things that's stressed, uh, especially in We the Navigators, is that the the degree of what they call screening, the screening of islands rather than individual island targets. So you would aim for a screen, like a line of islands that are all overlapping within the land finding range of one another, that uh, the, the degree of screening of an island or island group target was the number one safety concern when making a journey there. So more screening, more overlapping of the expanded targets is safer, and less screening where there are gaps between the expanded targets is much more dangerous because, again, of the danger of unknowingly passing your target. But I guess we should talk about what are the actual landfall signs? What are the environmental signs that can be used to detect land from a long distance away? Uh, I guess we should start with the one that is the most obvious. Maybe this one doesn't actually need to be said, but there are a couple of things about it that are worth sorting out, actually. So the the most obvious one is high ground, right? Mm -hmm. In some cases, your target island is very tall, and it can be seen from very far away. So, for example, Tahiti reaches elevations of something like 7,400 feet. And for this reason, the land itself can sometimes be seen from as far as 80 miles away. That's a real good distance. And likewise, Hawaii, uh, that can be seen from extremely far away. It contains volcanoes and rising land mass that sometimes up uh, up to like 13,000 feet. But not every island is tall like this. Many Pacific islands lie more or less at sea level with nothing much taller than the height of a palm tree. And you can easily miss these. Uh, Standard navigational lore holds that on these low islands, visibility is about 10 miles, given the presence of coconut palms, which grow to about 75 feet high. So at about 10 miles, you should be able to see the tallest of the coconut palms. It's interesting. I was reading about about this, and it reminded me of our episode on, on the Fata Morgana, where we talked yeah. about mirages and about how, in some cases, there were islands that we even put on maps that turned out to not be real. They were based on um, on mirages. And the reverse of that is also true. There are islands that, um, certainly as, as European uh, powers were coming into play and trying to map everything out, there were islands that were th- that were known to be to exist uh, by by the natives, but uh, the, some various Europeans would would have, would decide. Well, this was probably a mirage. We don't have oh, yeah, we don't know yeah. exactly where it is. 
But it would turn out it was actually there. Yeah. Right, right. And it's funny you should bring up the Fata Morgana episode because uh, though th- this land finding technique is way down the list in terms of, uh, of, of how commonly it was used and the level of priority it's given. But uh, one of the things mentioned in this book is that land loom, the optical illusion of, mm-hmm. of being able to see the land in a, in a superior mirage projected up above the, uh, the horizon, uh, even though the land is not visible itself from where you are – this actually was sometimes used by some Pacific Island navigators, specifically Lewis cites uh, navigators from the Gilberts using this mm. one. But uh, coming back to the idea of, of vantage points and high ground, there is actually a pretty reliable mathematical equation you can use for determining the visibility of an object over the horizon at sea. Uh, and, and it goes like this. So you take the square root of the height of the object you're looking for in feet – and and so this is uh, this method will be unit dependent, but the square root of the height of the object in feet. Uh, so that could be a you know a seventy five foot tall palm tree, or it could be a mountaintop or a lighthouse, whatever that is. And then you add that to the square root of the observer's height. So that would also be in feet. If you're you know if your eyes are five feet above the water, that's five feet. Or if you're sitting down in a low canoe, it's probably even lower. And then you you add those together and then you multiply by uh, – I've seen different numbers actually. Uh, I found a, a navigational website that suggested multiplying that number by 1.17. Lewis gives, uh, gives the idea to multiply it by 1.15. But whichever way you do, you'll probably get pretty close to the same answer. And this uh, will give you the distance away in miles that an object can usually be seen over the horizon. But uh, that made me think about the height of the observer, which makes me wonder about the land-finding virtues of different watercraft, right? Because there are obviously different kinds of watercraft people make these journeys in. Sometimes they're in uh, – they could be in outrigger canoes or they could be in a double-hulled uh, traditional navigational vessel that would have uh, a much more raised platform in the middle with even a cabin that I guess you could technically get on top of. I don't know – how I don't know what all of the the techniques with uh, with ancient Pacific watercraft would be for getting higher up as a vantage point, but that seems like that that could give you an advantage as, as well, right? Because of course they would not have the advantage uh, that that you would have with um, like a, a crow's nest uh, a lookout in a in a Western uh, sailing vessel, like you know, so a large scale uh, ocean voyaging ship. That's right, but uh, fortunately, these these Pacific navigators had uh, lots of other environmental cues they could look for, and these cues are very important because even with taller islands, so even if you're trying to get you know to a place that's mountainous, you're trying to get to Tahiti or Hawaii or something. Uh, environmental conditions can render these less visible. Uh, so Lewis gives the example of mountains, uh, the mountains of uh, Mangareva and Truk which should be visible based on their height from like 45 miles away. But he says that uh, in his case, when he was once approaching in, in the boat, uh, they were unable to see the peaks of these islands because of overcast. Oh, and yeah. so their first visual sighting was actually of the surrounding barrier reef rather than of the island itself. Now, as we go on to discuss more of these land-finding techniques, it's important to note that they vary in both directions, meaning that the land-finding techniques vary in preference of individual navigators and navigator cultures and in availability at target. So there are some like – there are some traditions of land-finding lore that place more emphasis on one or the other, but also you you need to have the backup knowledge because you're not always going to be able to find all of these when you look for them. 
Yeah, again, this is a suite of tools that one that a navigator would use. This is a toolbox of different techniques, and you're not going to want to depend on just one of them. Uh, you're going to use several of them, and some of them are going to be better than others, but when used in Congress, uh, you can get uh, – the, the trained navigator can get really positive results. Now, there's one thing that uh, Lewis mentions in his book, which I thought was interesting, which is a, a sort of counterexample to uh, – the thing we've talked about a couple a couple of times, which is that he says, you know, none of the navigators he spoke to or traveled with ever, ever appealed to the idea of a sixth sense, right? You were mentioning this earlier. It's not just intuition about being at sea. When they were making navigational decisions, they could always point to specific markers. They could say, the reason I'm going this way is because of this. It's something that was in the environment that could be pointed out and understood. So it wasn't just a gut feeling. But one place in which he does say intuition seemed to come in was in the calculus of how much to weight different types of observations of, of land-finding signs. Mm. So uh, navigators might get close to an island and you'd see one kind of sign and then another one and they'd be trying to decide which way to go based on uh, maybe different conflicting signals or – or uh, what what the the sort of sum total or average of the evidence was, and that did seem to be more based on a gut feeling after surveying all the evidence available to them. So I thought that was an interesting counterpoint. Yeah, yeah. So the first big sign dimension, I think, would be birds. Uh, there's actually a part where where Lewis cites a navigator named Tita who says that uh, – who, who is quoted at length on this. He says, birds are the navigator's very best friends. Birds are useful up to twice the sight range of an island from a canoe. And he also says, the sight range of land is about 10 miles and that of birds, 20. The birds which are the most significant are terns and noddies. Hmm. Yeah, I've read that you know, a lot of it comes down to familiarity with bird species. It's not just, of course, birds in general, but specific knowledge of how far out to sea a particular bird species will typically go. So if it's a if it's a seabird, for instance, the distance could be somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 uh, kilometers, which is about 62.1 uh, miles. Um, you know, again, it's just going to depend on the exact variety of bird uh, and while other varieties of bird are going to stay much closer to land. That's right. So, yeah, you need to look not just for birds in general, but for specific species of birds, uh, because there are, as you mentioned, pelagic species like petrels and shearwaters that will just not lead you to land with any reliability. If you follow mm -hmm. them, you may end up cruising out into the deep and not coming back. But once you get within about 30 to 50 miles of shore, you will start to see some familiar species that are somewhat reliable. Uh, so first of all, you'll see booby birds uh, and sometimes predatory frigate birds at this distance of 30 to 50 miles. And then even closer, within about 20 to 25 miles of the nearest atoll, you will get uh, what, what Lewis says are, quote, mixed flocks of white terns and noddies that will be encountered busily searching for fish. And once again, they show no more interest in directing the wayfarer than a busy New York policeman. <laughs> uh, so, so there's some uh, further deduction you have to do. It's not just like you see the birds and then you immediately know what's up. If you see booby birds, frigate birds, terns and noddies, you know you're close, but you can't really use their flight paths and behavior throughout the daytime to know which direction land lies. So what do you do? Well, you have to use time of day. 
These species roost on land and they have to return to solid ground daily. And so the time of day tells you a lot. They typically fly out to their fishing shoals from land in the early morning and then they return to land in the evening. So to read a uh, passage from from Lewis here, he writes, quote, Towards evening, the frigate birds, for example, will be seen to abandon their leisurely patrolling, climb even higher, and set off in one direction, probably homing by sight. About the same time, the boobies will tire of their inquisitive inspections and fly low and arrow straight for the horizon. As the noddies depart, they will weave slightly in and out between the crests of larger waves, while the turns will be flying a little above them, but all will be following a very exact path towards their home island. So once you are within range of land and you've gotten there again by the process of, uh, of, of open sea navigation, often by the stars and, uh, and then these backup methods together with dead reckoning, you get within range of the island, you start to see certain bird species and you know which species to look for and what time of day to follow them. And if you see the birds all trending in the same direction around sundown, then you know. There are also a few stories here and there about islands where some seagoing birds have been domesticated, you know, like fed and trained. Uh, but these stories seemed kind of vague and uncertain. Uh, but it is at least an interesting possibility to consider whether there's much to it or not. Like what if an island culture could essentially train frigate birds to be the Walmart greeters of the island? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And almost like living lighthouses in some respects. Yeah. Because the behavior of birds can factor in, uh, apart from just, uh, you know, flying back, like booby birds are considered useful in that they will not only fly toward land at the close of day, they will often take an active interest in approaching boats and they will try to land on them, like land on the rigging or something before eventually flying off toward home in the evening. Now, I know a lot of you out there probably watch The Simpsons or have watched The Simpsons in the past, and you're probably mm -hmm. thinking about the scene in the episode Boy Scouts in the Hood. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this is the the episode um, in, well, let's see, I'm trying to remember exactly how it went. They get lost at sea. Uh, well, first they get lost at river, which uh -huh. then results in them being lost at sea. And they're trying to get back to uh, to land. And then what do they see in the sky? They see a seagull. Is this the one that starts with Bart wanting a knife, but to yes. get the knife? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he, he has to join he has to, he has to read the book, Don't Do What Donnie Don't Does. Yep. But yeah, it ends up with them doing a Boy Scout yeah, river race. And so they're lost at sea. And what I don't remember what happens with the seagull. I think uh, Ned declare Ned is with them. And Ned looks up and he sees that there's a seagull. And he declares mm -hmm. that they're saved. Um, but then it, is it is, then it is brought up that seagulls only go out to sea to die. And then the seagull dies. So they're still <laughs> lost. Uh, now, I was thinking about this in connection with, um, with, with some of these islands, particularly with the Hawaiian islands. And this is a fun, fun fact. Of the various species of seagulls uh, out there, and there are many. Seagulls are not one species. They're multiple. You'll find some of them in the Hawaiian islands, but a great many gulls cannot survive in Hawaii because the islands lack the sort of shallow coastal scavenging waters that one finds in continental settings. Mm. Some of these gulls do wind up in Hawaii, but only to starve to death because they do not Ooh. have the environment they need to survive. Well, that actually ties into the next thing I wanted to mention, which is that everything we've talked about so far is in the context of land finding by way of local birds in a near radius to an island. You know, mm -hmm. they, they live on the island, and once you see them, you know you're near the island, you can follow them home. But there's another use of bird navigation entirely 
which is the possibility that some ancient Pacific Islanders deduced the presence of previously unknown islands by observing the migratory patterns of land birds. Stories like this exist in some island sailor lore, so it seems quite reasonable to assume that, that some islands were indeed discovered this way, but ultimately it's, it's historical speculation and we don't know for sure, but it, that, that does seem like a, a very plausible guess as to how some of uh, these islands were found when they had never been seen by humans before. I should also add that um, of, of the various birds you could cite that would give you an indication that you were near land, the dodo, the absolute best. Once you've, <laughs> once you've spotted the dodo, you're good to go. Uh, by, by the way, if you find yourself um, in Hawaii, if you find yourself on the island of Oahu, I highly recommend going to the Bishop Museum there. Um, it is, a, it is a wonderful museum that covers uh, uh, so much about uh, Polynesian culture and, uh, and Hawaiian history, and it covers some of what we're talking about here. There, there, there's stuff about the, uh, the canoes that were used, uh, the navigational techniques that were used, and, and so forth. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm sure the Bishop Museum will come up again, but I, I highly recommend it. You will, if, you, if you visit the islands, you, you kind of owe it to yourself uh, to, to go to the Bishop Museum. All right, so we've talked about high ground. We've talked about birds. What's next? Okay, the next one is is fascinating to me, and, and it is the use of clouds to find nearby land. So you might think, well, how could you use that? I mean, there are clouds over the open ocean. What, what would clouds tell you? Uh, but it turns out uh, they can tell you quite a lot. There, there is this tradition among Pacific navigators of looking for your target by what's known as land clouds, patterns of cloud formations that are consistent with the presence of land rather than open water. So how would clouds appearing over an island be any different than clouds appearing anywhere else? Uh, well, there are actually a number of signs that are used. So navigators claim, first of all, that clouds move more quickly over open water and more slowly over land, almost as if they appear to become stuck over islands that are hidden beyond the horizon. But there are also a number of difficult-to-describe characteristics that uh, that these navigators look for, having to do with the formation, appearance, and behavior of clouds over dry land. And one example is the, the telltale shapes, uh, specifically the eyebrows and the V-shape. Uh, both of these are referred to, for example, by a navigator named Abera that is uh, ex- that was extensively interviewed by by David Lewis in his book. And so, according to the navigational lore of Abera, uh, the eyebrows, meaning these, uh, I mean, I guess I can't describe them any better than that. Clouds that look like eyebrows appear in the sky over where an island would be. So, if they are eyebrows, you'd imagine the island down below the horizon is sort of where the nose is, or maybe where the lips are. So, it's between the two eyebrows. And these eyebrow-looking clouds are more common when the weather is calm and there are no other clouds. Whereas a, a different formation known as the V-shape, the V-shaped column is present over islands when there is wind and when there are other clouds. And the V-shape, basically the, the vertex of it at the bottom, points down to where the island is. But even more fascinating than that to me is that experienced navigators mentioned that there are cues rooted in the color of clouds. Clouds hovering over an island below the horizon will tend to have different colors and levels of brightness than clouds floating over the ocean. And apparently a lot of this has to do with the actual reflection of the colors of the land lying below the cloud. It's amazing. 
Yeah, yeah, this is really neat. I was reading about this uh, specifically as it as it concerns lagoons, lagoons mm. being shallow bodies of water, uh, the open ocean being deep water, and mm. therefore the lagoon water, as reflected in the cloud, will be a lighter shade of blue. Um, so, so, yeah, that's so. You know, it's not like a mirror. You're not going to be like, oh, look, I can see the reflection of the entire island to which we are going. No, but the, to the trained eye, you would be able to see the difference in the color. Like it, there's a lighter blue reflected in the clouds. That that must be the blue of the lagoons on the island. Though I should, of course, also stress this. Like a lot of the things we're discussing here, uh, we should add the caveat under the right conditions. Exactly. So none of these signs we're talking about are always observable. Uh, and and Lewis stresses this a lot, that it requires consistent, focused attention in looking for all of the available cues that you know about. So looking for a few minutes, you are quite likely to see nothing, to get no cues. Mm-hmm. But if an experienced navigator pays close attention for several hours, usually at least one type of land sign will manifest. Yeah. And just to get a sense of what the, uh, the the effects of reflected color from land on the clouds would be like, I want to read a section from Lewis here where he describes some examples. So uh, he says, quote, The colors that begin to appear closer to land vary with the makeup of the island. There are three kinds of island with corresponding clouds, Tita says. Above lagoon islands, the cloud roof tends to be greenish. Over extensive areas of white sand or surf, the cloud or a portion of it will be brighter, more white than the rest. The clouds above a wooded green island will be darker than their neighbors. Abara referred to a pink tinge over reefs and green above lagoons. Rewi likewise said that lagoon islands reflect green, and ones without lagoons a reddish color. Islands with no lagoons, like Kuria, said Yotibata, reflect a dark color that must be distinguished from rain cloud, which appears very similar. Islands with big stretches of dry reef or mangroves have bright colored clouds above them. And then he mentions that given the fact that all of the stuff he's just been saying comes from different interviews with different navigators from different islands and uh, with four separate interpreters transcribing uh, what they were saying, uh, the fact that they're so consistent in what they say about the colors reflected in the clouds is pretty amazing. Yeah. Now, there's another very important thing that I'm not going to spend a lot of time on just because we discussed it somewhat in our previous episode. And now in the the last episode, we talked about feeling for swells in the sea as a way of direction finding, but also a navigator can feel for the reflection, refraction, and interference with swells, uh, with known ocean swells, to detect that land is is nearby. And Lewis goes into deep detail on this practice in his book. But uh, essentially, it's it's uh, similar to feeling to direction finding with the help of swells, except feeling for interruptions in swells and reflections of swells from known land masses. But there's one last thing I wanted to talk about here that is really interesting and, and almost kind of creepy, especially because it is to some degree still mysterious, though there, there are some I- ideas about what it might be. Uh, so we've talked, uh, you know, at length before about bioluminescence in the ocean, you know, a kind of uh, that is a regular profuse light in the water from organisms like bioluminescent plankton. 
And uh, and Lewis recounts in the book that some navigators say that bioluminescence in the water just doesn't tell you much useful. Other sources seem to think it increases when near near land or a reef. Uh, But in any case, it's important to distinguish regular bioluminescence in the water from this next land sign, which is fascinating. And it's what David Lewis calls deep phosphorescence, but it is also known as te lapa spelled T-E space L-A-P-A. The navigator Tevake calls this uh, calls it underwater lightning. It's also described by another navigator as Ulo Etahi, or the glory of the seas. And so I want to uh, read Lewis describing what this is. Uh, he's, he's just picking up after Tevake has, has called it underwater lightning, which he thinks is an excellent analogy. And Lewis writes, quote, It comprises streaks, flashes, and momentarily glowing plaques of light, all well beneath the surface. Exactly like lightning, it flickers and darts and is in constant motion. It occurs a good deal deeper down than common luminescence, at anything from a foot or two to more than a fathom. All right, so that's already strange because I, mm-hmm. I, you know, otherwise I'd never heard of anything like that anymore. Flashes of light from deep under the water, almost like lightning, but it gets even weirder. Apparently, Telapa seems to flash from the direction of an island or a reef. You can see it well into the deep sea when you're 80 to 100 miles away from land. But as you approach the island, the flashes of light become more and more rare, and then they disappear entirely as you get really close. The distance from land or from reefs also seems to affect how the light moves. There are slow flashes of light far out at sea, but then about 10 to 20 miles from land, it starts to take on a rapid whipping back and forth movement. And uh, and it's also generally understood that telapa coming from reefs is slower moving than telapa coming from islands. So this was amazing to me because I'd never heard of anything like this before. Yeah, yeah, this was definitely new to me as well. Um, and it, it is, yeah, mysterious sounding, the idea of underwater bioluminescent lightning uh, being some sort of guide. Again, like all of these things, not the primary guide, but some additional tool that you could turn to. Right. Uh, well, one thing I want to note, uh, you said it's the, the telapa is bioluminescent, which it may well might be, but it might be some other kind of luminescence as well. It's still... Mm-hmm. Uh, there's still some question about what causes it, and we'll discuss that more in a minute. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's not a given that it's necessarily bioluminescent, uh, like the uh, you know the like the the general sort of uh, ambient glow that you see in the upper area of the sea. That's known to be bioluminescent. Mm. But it's important that what you say uh, that this is very much a, a backup method, and it's not known to everyone. Uh, so. Lewis documented references to it in the navigational lore from two Polynesian areas and one Micronesian area, but there were plenty of other uh, navigators who didn't seem to know anything about Telapa, like they'd never even heard of this concept. Yeah, one of the uh, the people, the more recent people that we were looking at uh, concerning this topic is a Harvard physicist by the name of John Huth. Um, and uh, and he points out that, yeah, in some cultures, you just see no mention of it. Uh, the Marshall Islands being one that he specifically mentions uh, where the, they just didn't didn't have the concept. And and it's unknown exactly why. Is it an environmental reason? Like it, whatever this phenomena is, it's not it wasn't present, uh, you know, around the Marshall Islands or islands that were of interest to these uh, navigators. Or is it a situation where 
in, for this particular culture, they found that this was not a reliable navigational tool and it just wasn't worth keeping around. Uh, like it's not one you could lean heavily on and, and it would always be just kind of a, like a, a, a second or third tier backup anyway. It, it remains a mystery. Yeah, yeah. So uh, some islanders explain that as this backup method of navigation, they could use Telapa to steer on dark, rainy nights. So maybe you can't see the stars. You can perhaps see these flashes of underwater lightning. And Lewis actually documents that he himself observed it. Uh, there was one night when it was late at night and it was dark and he was sailing with Tevake. This was on the, the 31st of December. Uh, he writes, quote, Land Lapa was seen to be darting to and fro along two distinct bearings, which were both plain enough for me to see, despite the clear night and the comparative nearness of the islands. One series kept flashing from a direction which Teveke averred was that of the volcano Tinakula. The other, he said, was from the island of Nadeni. Morning revealed the high islands of Tinakula and Nadeni each about 20 miles away, and respectively west and south of our position. These were the directions that the old navigator had indicated. So in this experience, he says, yep, I saw it. Uh, Teveke told me it was there. I looked and I saw it, and it was in the directions of the islands, just like he said it would be. And so Lewis did believe he was the first person to document this navigational sign in print. Of course, it was known before him to, to the people who possessed it as part of their navigational lore. Uh, but he believed that this phenomenon had no European definition. And, uh, and of course, again, not all navigators in the Pacific Islands were aware of Telapa, but some were from at least three distinct regions that he, that he interviewed navigators from. And it was interpreted and uh, it turned out to provide accurate information. So what was it? What's causing these flashes of light underneath the water from the direction of islands or reefs? Lewis ultimately says in the book, and again, this was in 72, so we may have developed some knowledge since then, but Lewis said he really didn't know what it was, and he guessed that it may have had something to do with deep swell movement, maybe a kind of deep mm. reflection of waves from islands or reefs, but that leaves a lot of lingering questions. Why, why if it's bouncing off of these islands or reefs, why could it be seen at such great distances from land, albeit moving more slowly? And one thing that I that I found, uh, so I was reading a, a Harvard Gazette article about the work of that physicist you mentioned, John Huth, who had done some follow-up work on this. And uh, th this Gazette article mentioned that many scholars disputed Lewis's reports of the Telapa. Uh, quote, the lights were initially dismissed as fantasy when other researchers reported that they were unable to see them. Some critics, Huth said, thought that pursuing, quote, underwater lightning was akin to chasing the abominable snowman. <laughs> yeah, uh, John Huth seems to have done uh, you know, a fair amount of work uh, dealing with, with uh, Tilapa. And uh, one, one uh, source that I was uh, reading was uh, the, the article, Conclusions, A Cross-Disciplinary Journey Through Spatial Orientation by Huth, published in the journal Structure and Dynamics in 2016. And in this, he points out that there is still no de definitive explanation for the origin of Tilapa. Uh, but one possibility that that, uh, that he seems to like is that it's a byproduct of fish darting in a patch of sea rich with uh, dino of flagellates, which emit light in response to, to the stimuli of pressure waves. But even if that is the case, he says, then it still leaves a mystery of the directionality of the fish movements themselves. You know, why and how can we navigate by this information? Right. What, if that's the explanation, why would it point to islands in a reliable way? Right. 
And uh, one of the challenges in researching, as uh, Huth points out, is the, the just the difficulty of repro- reproducing sightings. Uh, we need further studies, which require both sensitive equipment and dependable sightings of the phenomena. Uh, and and again, he pointed to the the fact that you don't actually see it as a navigational aid in some cultures, uh, such as the Marshall Islands, raising questions of, you know, is this cultural? Is it environmental? And it's simply unknown. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, it's 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 really fascinating and and again it 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 i think it serves to just rem, to remind ourselves that yeah we're dealing with a suite of different navigational techniques and and if if this is am, among the tools at your disposal then you know perhaps it is useful in in deciding like fine tuning your uh, your your directional approach uh, but perhaps for some of some cultures they abandon it because it did not seem useful enough we just don't know I mean, I'm pretty convinced that people are actually observing this, that it's not just a fantasy. I mean, not only mm-hmm. because uh, it, it is part of the navigational lore and seems to have been used as this backup method of, of direction finding, but also because, uh, I mean, there are additional modern reports of people saying, yeah, I actually did see it, even if I was not able to photograph it. Uh, for example, I found an article by a scholar named Marianne George, who is a, a cultural anthropologist who uh, talks about this in an article called Polynesian Navigation and Telapa, the Flashing, published in Time and Mind, the Journal of Archaeology, Consciousness and Culture from 2012. And she also talks about having been able to, to eventually witness it herself out on the ocean. But I don't think you can find video of it. I don't think anybody's ever captured it like that. Hmm. So still a very interesting question. Now, one of the the really interesting things concerning all of this, uh, again, is the idea that in modern times, researchers have had to to fit a lot of this back together, you know, depending on genetics and linguistics and oral histories, et cetera, all all these various uh, disciplines. And as discussed uh, in multiple places, but uh, specifically, uh, you see this discussed uh, at the the Bishop Museum, both the physical museum and the online presence. You also see it discussed at... um, at the website for uh, Hokulea, uh, that's ho- that's um, at hokulea.com, that is uh, H-O-K-U-L-E uh, apostrophe A, is that you saw something rather interesting concerning deep sea voyages in Hawaiian culture. And I, I believe I mentioned this in one of the previous episodes, and that is that deep sea voyages in Hawaii had been extinct for several hundred years. Uh, this was before contact with Europeans. The period of long voyages ended along with all contact with other Polynesian islands, and they lived in near complete isolation until 1778. Now, there remained memories of the, the age of long voyages and stories of their origins, of, of the, the origins of the Hawaiian people um, and their waves of migration from Tahiti, which is uh, 2,500 miles away. But again, the exact art of deep sea voyages had not been practiced for quite some time. Meanwhile, uh, some Europeans formed their own ideas about how humans could have possibly made it out to such far-flung islands. We mentioned this uh, in passing, you know, the idea that it was surely surely by accident uh, that these uh, ancient sailors made their way to these various islands. Right, the idea that uh, new islands would have always been discovered and initially colonized by people who got lost or were, you know, blown away in storms, random drifts, basically. And again, modern scholarship has has turned away from that idea that, of course, there would probably be some cases of islands being discovered by accident, but also a lot of cases of deliberate exploratory ventures. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, there are also some outliers, such as Thor Heyerdahl's hypothesis that South American sailors made the voyage. Uh, He famously tried and failed to prove this. 
but yeah, the predominant theory for a long time was that Polynesian sailors just simply didn't have the skill to make the journey. And they either rode the wind currents and or were blown off course and arrived at the Hawaiian Islands by accident. But then in 1973, the Polynesian Voyaging Society formed to challenge this theory. Uh, Dr. Ben uh, Finney, uh, Herb Kawanui Kane, and Tommy Holmes aimed to put together a team to build a traditional deep sea voyaging Hawaiian canoe and sail it from the Hawaiian Islands to Tahiti. Now, uh, one of the challenging parts in all this was simply finding a traditional sailing master. Uh, again, especially when you're dealing with Hawaiian culture, this is this is something of a forgotten science. At the uh, um, so it, it had not been practiced in a while. So they ended up going with a, a particular individual by the name of of Malpai Lung, um, who lived 1932 through 2010, a man from the Micronesian island of Sadawal. He'd been trained from an early age in the traditional techniques of of navigation, environmental navigation, and he proved an essential part of this whole experiment and is still remembered as a major figure both in the academic exploration of of Hawaiian history, Polynesian uh, history, uh, and and oceanic culture, uh, but also just as sort of something of a cultural hero as well. So the story of of Hokulea is really fascinating, and there have been whole documentaries about it. They have a wonderful website. But essentially, they built a 62-foot-long, 19-foot-wide, double-hulled canoe, or uh, Wa'a Kuloa, and they called it... um, they called the vessel um, Hokulea, uh, named for an important navigational star. It's the the Star of Gladness, also known as Arcturus, and the brightest star in the Boötes constellation. While the ship's construction also made use of plywood, fiberglass, and resin, uh, and it was accompanied by a, a modern vessel, um, uh, Hokulea itself was completely unpowered, and even more importantly, navigation was attempted without the use of any technology or devices, at least on the way to Tahiti. Um, for the return trip, they did use some instruments. Uh, but uh, they just, yeah, they depended on the traditional navigation practices that Malpai Lung brought with him. And so on May 1st, 1976, they set out from uh, Honolulu Bay on Maui and traveled 33 days uh, to Papaeta Harbor in Tahiti. And they also brought along with them livestock to study how these could be cared for at sea. Uh, because as we mentioned, you know, canoe species were a key part of the equation. It's not just could you, could you voyage to this island or these islands, but could you bring the species with you that you needed to survive? Amazing. Yeah, and, and it was a success. Uh, again, they did use instruments on the return trip, but at that point they had already proved what was possible. And multiple voyages have been completed since then to further prove all of this out. Now, an interesting wrinkle in all of this um, is that during the 1990s, the Bishop Museum's Native Hawaiian Arts and Culture Program, they set out to create an authentic version of this sort of vessel using only traditional and native materials. So again, you know, not the fiberglass and so forth, but they said, let's build one like would have been built um, historically. Mm -hmm. And they found that the native uh, koa trees of the islands were too small due to human activities. Uh, so they ultimately, they, they, had to, they had to go beyond the islands in order to get the wood to build the canoe. They were ultimately gifted 400-year-old spruce logs from a tribe in southeast Alaska and used those to construct the vessel. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, I, 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 I highly recommend looking into uh, the, the Hokulea Project, their website, uh, various documentaries about what they did and, and and continue to do. I, I, it is my understanding that the, the vessel is still functional, still operational, and they still, uh, they still take it out. This whole series has been one of those uh, 
episodes on the show where I'm just amazed because I uh, this is something I knew absolutely nothing about to start with. I would not have known the the, the very first thing about like how you navigate on the open sea without uh, instruments. I mean, to be honest, I don't know how you do it with instruments either. But <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, th- this is uh, this has been so eye opening. Uh, just thinking about like how much information you can get from the environment if you know if you've when you build on the knowledge accumulated over generations and and you have the the discipline and the attention to pay attention to your surroundings with this level of care yeah as certainly as as a landsman as uh, as Herman Melville would put it i am amazed by all this but uh, but i think it's also worth worth pointing out that you know we've touched on experienced sailors who have been very into this topic as well have been amazed by it uh, as well so yeah. Uh, yeah there's there's a lot to marvel at here all right. Well, there you have it. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed uh, this journey uh, as we've enjoyed uh, researching it and discussing it. If you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, which you'll get wherever you get your podcast. Core episodes air on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We run a short-form artifact on Wednesdays, listener mail on Mondays, and on Fridays we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside the science and the culture, for the most part, and talk about a weird picture. And then we have, uh, on the weekends, a rerun. Uh, but yeah, just uh, find us wherever you get your podcast. You can also go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, and that will shoot you to the iHeart listing for our page. Uh, wherever you go if they give you the power to do so just rate review and subscribe huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.